Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we need your grace this morning to live lives of holiness and godliness as we await your return. Pour out your spirit upon all flesh. Pour out your spirit in this church. Give us everything we need for that life. We trust you. We put our hope in your word. Lord, help us to read and mark and inwardly digest your scriptures. And let this moment as we come to your scriptures, Lord, help us to hear and to believe and to trust you this morning. We ask this all in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I encourage you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1 in the first verse. This will be my sermon text this morning. Now, the preface to Mark's gospel is very short. It's concise. And so I have a short introduction, not necessarily a short sermon, but a short introduction here this morning. Now, each gospel writer, so there's four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they have unique emphases, unique emphases. So Mark's gospel is, is a strange reading for Christmas time, for Christmas time. But remember, it isn't Christmas yet. So it isn't Christmas yet. Mark doesn't start with the Christmas story. Mark's preface is only eight verses. It's only eight verses, and it's about John the Baptist. It's about John the Baptist. So only two of the four gospel writers begin with the story of Jesus' birth, the sort of the pre-story of Jesus' birth, but all four gospel writers include the story of John the Baptist at the beginning, John the Baptist. So similar to Luke's gospel, who compares, so Luke begins his gospel by very clearly and explicitly comparing the birth story, Elizabeth's birth story. So she, was, she, she had John and Mary's birth story. She was the mother of our Lord Jesus. So Luke compares uh, John and Jesus with the birth story, but Mark begins by comparing John with his cousin Jesus in a different way. Verse 3, John is in the wilderness. Verse 12, Jesus is in the wilderness. Verse 2, John's story begins with a word from the Lord about John. Verse 11, Jesus' story begins with a word from the Lord about Jesus. Verse 2, John, and this is, kind of, this is kind of strange and kind of exciting, John is an angel. He's an angel who ministers to Jesus in the wilderness. Verse 13, angels minister to Jesus in the wilderness. Verse 4, this is uh, two more examples. Verse 4, John came proclaiming. Verse 14, Jesus came proclaiming. Verse 7, John's proclamation is summarized, or else a a summarization of all of John's teaching. And in verse 15, Jesus' proclamation is summarized. It's about what we're going to read in the next 15 chapters of Mark's gospel. So here's the point. Here's the point of this comparison Perhaps surprisingly to many of us, at the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Mark invites us to consider first John the Baptist. John the Baptist. And this is not unique 
among the gospel writers. So I want to do two things this morning. I want to spend most of our time reflecting on John the Baptist, reflecting on him, and then I want to reflect on Jesus Christ. So we're going to start at the end and we're going to end at the beginning. I hope that doesn't confuse you too much. We're going to start at the end and end at the beginning. Reverse it a little bit. So here's my first point about John the Baptist. And if this doesn't confuse you, then I don't know what confuses you. I'm going to call this the end. The end of the good news. The end, John the Baptist. Look with me at verse 1. Right at the very beginning of verse 1, this first clause, the first word, the beginning. The beginning of the good news. The beginning of the gospel the first word of Mark's gospel is arche. It's beginning, and this is the first word of Holy Scripture. If you're reading in your Greek Old Testament, it begins in arche, in the beginning. So this is clearly, John is pointing back to the beginning. So if the first word of Mark is beginning, is arche, then why am I beginning my sermon with this word by calling my first point the end, the end of the gospel. Well, it's because of this. It's because this word points us back to the Old Testament. It immediately invites us to think about the Old Testament. As my, as my pastor in seminary always said, dear reader, this is, a, this is a callback. Dear reader, pay attention. You've heard this word before. Dear reader, John is the end of a story that became, began a long time ago. Or as Origen said in the third century, John is the summarizing type. He's the summarizing type. He stands at the juncture of the new and the old. Now, some of us are familiar with this kind of thinking, and we might phrase it as what, what we call today in our modern parlance, covenant theology, what covenant theologians do, but this is not a new system. It's not a new way of reading the scriptures. It goes all the way back to the early church fathers. There is a deep connection, and it's clear right at the beginning of the gospel, or else a continuity. They go together between old and new, and John is right here standing in between. Origen goes on to say, those who deepen in the knowledge of Christianity, do not treat the things written in the law with disrespect. So this is how we begin. The gospel is intrinsically connected, Origen says, with the Old Testament. And he's absolutely right, and he's not alone. So John, he stands at the juncture of new and old, of the new covenant and the old covenant. He is not the fulfillment. He's not the fulfillment of the covenant promises. He is pointing. He's pointing to the one who has come to fulfill the covenant promises. He's a messenger. He's an angel. He's an angel of the Lord who points to the coming Lord. He's sent by God to declare this message. John is, in other words, he's the end of the old. He's the end of the old prophetic witness. He's the summary of the prophetic witness. And Mark quotes from Malachi and Isaiah, and he puts it all together as if in summary of this prophetic witness. Look, look, God, God will come. God is here. 
Look for him to come. Prepare the way of the Lord. So John summarizes the message of the prophets. John is the last son, the last son of Israel, who would wander in the wilderness. Who would wander in the wilderness. And Jesus, and we hear this later in verse 1, Jesus who is the Son of God. And this is provocative language. It should remind you of this story. Jesus, the Son of God, would go into the wilderness right after this story, would go into the wilderness, and he would remain steadfast, unlike all the sons of Israel. He didn't wander. He conquered the temptations of Satan in the wilderness. So this is, this is right here where new and old come together. Hilary of Poitiers in the 4th century says it like this, We, you and I, we are sons of God. We are sons and daughters of God. We are like Israel who wander, and you can say in the wilderness, who wander in the wilderness, but Jesus is not a son. He's not a son as we are. He's not a son like us, for he is the very and proper son. By origin, not by adoption. By origin, not by adoption. In truth, not in name. By birth, not by creation. So here's the contrast between a son in the wilderness, maybe the last of the sons of Israel in the wilderness, and the Son of God. John is also a prophet like Elijah. Like Elijah, clearly, here at the beginning of the Gospel, he's pictured like Elijah. He's fasting. He's not indulging his desires. He's eating locusts. Who gross. Yes, that's not normal cuisine in the first century. He's eating locusts as if, as if eating manna from God in the wilderness. He's wearing wild and simple clothing. Many went out to meet John. Where, where civilization met the wilderness, they met at this meeting place at the waters of the Jordan River, like Elijah. John baptized with water, the Gospel writer says, as men do. This is what men can do. Jesus, who would come later and complete John's baptisms, Je Jesus cleansed not just skin, not just skin, as Peter will later write, with water, Jesus cleansed in the way that only God can cleanse, which is to say, he purifies us and he pur purifies our soul with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He cleanses both the outside and the inside of his disciples with the very presence of God through baptism. So Jesus is a prophet John is a prophet like Elijah. John also, he embodied and proclaimed humility. This is clear from the very beginning. I cannot survive. I cannot survive, John says, if I don't have God with me. I am not worthy so much as to gather up crumbs under your table. If I only touch the strap of your sandal, then I would be utterly undone. You see his approach, his holy approach to the Lord. John was the end of the old age, and he witnessed the beginning of the new. From his mother's womb, he jumped at the presence of Jesus. He grew up alongside his king, and then his head was chopped off. Chopped off before his cousin, Jesus, went to the cross. So John was 
He was this covenant connecting witness to Jesus, but he did not himself witness the empty tomb of his cousin's resurrection. Here at the end, so we're looking at John, we're looking at John the Baptist. Here at the end of this old story, Mark invites us to consider John at the beginning of the gospel. Prepare the way of the Lord. This is his proclamation, prepare the way of the Lord. Even as Isaiah proclaimed, prepare the way of the Lord. How do we do this? How do we do this? I want to look at John just a little bit more. John a little bit more throughout church history. And then I want to reflect finally on Jesus. Origen said it like this. The way of the Lord. So as we consider John's proclamation of preparing the way of the Lord to come. Origen says this, the way of the Lord must be prepared within the heart. For great and spacious is the heart of man, as if it were a whole world. But see its greatness, not in bodily quantity. So it's not about having a big heart or a big chest or something like that. But in the power of the mind, the human mind, which enables it to encompass so great a knowledge of the truth. Origen invites us to prepare, therefore, in your hearts the way of the Lord. The way of the Lord by a worthy manner of life. Keep straight the path of your life so that the words of the Lord may enter in without hindrance without hindrance and so preparing the way of the Lord is to look to the word of the Lord so that we can contain this great reality within ourselves within ourselves and I think this is right but here's the question how do we do this how do we do this how are we to prepare our hearts and our minds to receive or else to believe to encompass as origin says a knowledge that is so big is so great. How can we encompass that? Mere humans. How can we even begin to comprehend the truth of this world changing, this turn in human history, this life transforming reality of God with us, which is what we're about to celebrate. God with us, the gospel. Well, here, here, is, here is the beauty of this. We can look at John. We can look at John in both his words and in his practice. But what specifically does that mean? There's there's really no way for me to unpack this fully, but thankfully we don't have to make it up. So here's a big statement. I'm going to make a big statement that might be kind of surprising to you or maybe new to you. John, or John the Baptist, was, and perhaps centrally he was, the inspiration for living the Christian life From the very beginning of the church. Let me say that again. Obviously. Hear this. Obviously Jesus is the Christ. Christians are to be like Jesus. You guys get that right? That's what it means to be a Christian. To follow Jesus. So Jesus is the way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. But John the Baptist from the very beginning. He was was a sort of a tangible human presence of a way to get to Jesus. To get to him. He inspired the way of faithfulness or a way of faithfulness to Jesus that would shape St. Augustine and John Chrysostom and Gregory and countless other clergy and laity, capital S saints, lowercase 
as saints throughout the thousands of years that is the church to live a holy life. That's a big statement. I want to show you a little bit this morning. So when Rome fell, when Rome fell in the late 4th and early 5th centuries, when civilization collapsed, this was the center of the world. Imagine, if you will, the United States ceasing to exist. It's the center of the world's economy. So when Rome fell, and the church in that place, in this, in this place, in this kingdom, the church had become so popular that men would go to seminary and they would want to become pastors because it would, it would be a place of honor. It would look honorable to them. This is, this is strange in the history of the world to this point. The world was all about sex. The world was all about gluttony and power and games and games upon games. When the immediate satisfaction of desires was the highest good, it was the highest goal, and distractions and decadence was all around. Does this sound familiar to you? Does it sound familiar to you? John the Baptist was a shining light in the midst of this crumbling reality. John the Baptist was the model for pointing to Jesus in the early church, and it continued for generations. And here's the word that you might be familiar with. This is monasticism. This is monasticism. So let me give you a little brief tour of history. This is really important, and it's good. We don't have to make up what it means to follow John the Baptist. People have been inspired by his example for thousands of years. Here's a few examples. You guys know him? My favorite, John Chrysostom. So I'm going to go in order here. There's a lot of other people that I could talk about. But John Chrysostom, he described the great difficulty of following Jesus. Do you guys know how hard it is to follow Jesus? Right? John, he does that. But he describes how difficult it is to follow Jesus in the isolation. So by himself in the desert or else in a monastery. So in the monastery, John says, alone by myself, he was free from all of the follies of normal society. Doesn't that sound relaxing to many of you? And even there, John says, even there, it was hard for him to not be ruled by his own desires. He escaped all the distractions of this Roman world, and even then, he could not, he could not escape Mastering himself was incredibly difficult still. Being allowed to live alone, Chrysostom says, he was able to be disciplined, just a little bit, be disciplined to fast, to follow Jesus, to be consistent in making time for prayer, to read and inwardly digest Holy Scripture, to, as he would call it, make progress in philosophy or in the philosophy of life, the only way to live. Chrysostom famously did not want to be ordained as a priest because he did not want to leave solitude. He didn't want to do it. He wanted to remain as a monk. He wanted to remain as laity. So we think of monks as ordained people or something. They're not. Mostly they're not. They're lay people. He wanted to remain as a monk because he could barely stay faithful to Jesus when all he had to do was, quote, attend to his own needs. Man, and if he became a priest, this is why he avoided it for many years, if he entered back into normal society, 
with women and children and the poor and the rich, in that, in that, in that convalescence of all of humanity, he would then have to not only fend off the distractions of the society around him, but he would also have to take upon himself the burdens and needs of everyone in the church. This was his, this was his writing. And as a priest... He would have to, a little bit more than that, he would have to give an account for not only his own soul, which he was struggling to keep faithful to the Lord in solitude, he would have to give an account for all those under his care. And so, that makes sense. He would avoid the priesthood. A few centuries later, St. Gregory the Great, inspired by the life and witness of John the Baptist, he would write a manual for former monastics, former monks who would be sent out to the priesthood. He recognized that John Chrysostom knew what he was talking about because normal society is harder than just being by yourself. Can I get an amen? Does everyone agree with that, right? So Gregory recognized this difficulty. So he taught that the normal Christian life must be a balance. It has to be a balance between the ascetic practices of monasticism getting away, getting alone with God, and attending to the cares of normal life. Both and. Both of these together. The necessity for getting alone and sitting with God and with yourself before Him and going to quiet places and ridding yourself from distractions and fasting and abstaining. One who devotes himself to Holy Scripture by himself and copying it and copying it in the wilderness. This is the image. Making room in his heart for God to come. In other words, preparing the way of the Lord. The strict monasticism of what would later become called the Desert Fathers and John Chrysostom, it was translated by Gregory for monks who were sent into civilization. Back into the craziness and distractions and cares of the normal life of the church. And this monastic tradition comes all the way down to us in our prayer book. In our prayer book. In the necessary rhythm of praying together. Morning and midday and evening. Not nine times. Not nine times like they would have done early on. But three. Maybe four. And maybe one if you can get to it. And maybe a short version of it, so you can get to it if you have kids, right? And maybe once a week on Sunday nights. There you go. At the end of the day, at the beginning of the day, if you don't enter into communal practices of praying together out in this life, this is what Gregory says over and over again, like monks, like monks, then you'll never pray by yourself. If you don't do it together, you won't do it by yourself. Definitely not out in the wilderness, but certainly not in the distractions of normal society. This was the teaching of St. Gregory the Great. Be a monk, in other words. Be a monk like John the Baptist, or be a nun like Macrina. There's many examples of this. We all need quiet time. We all need to be alone, and this is not just for introverts. We all need this. We need to get away, but not merely to get by ourselves. If you're an extrovert like me, you need to discipline yourself to get alone, though. We, we, we need to do this. You, you need to discipline yourself to get alone with God in silence. Certainly, certainly for minutes and hours, 
but we need to increase that more and more in our lives for days, maybe even weeks or months. Retreat without your phone, maybe, for a day, or maybe even a minute or an hour. Clear your calendar, make space for silence. Gather to pray with the church tonight. If you can't get away, and this is what Chrysostom and Gregory point to over and over again, if you're, if you're stuck in the midst of the craziness of normal life, you can't get away, discipline yourself to cut out distractions where you can, just a little bit more. If you cannot completely leave your phone, delete all the distractions off your home screen. And if that's not enough for you, cast all of those apps into the outer darkness of the cloud Maybe not forever, but maybe just for Advent. All those things that you just want to keep clicking. Maybe cast them out for a little while. Get alone. Get comfortable with boredom and silence. This is good for your soul. When, if you get alone, point your heart to Jesus like John. This is not me time, necessarily. It's not just merely alone time. It's me with the Lord time. Prepare the way of the Lord. And when people wander into your wilderness, as John is out in the wilderness, they wander into your alone time, don't grumble like the sons of old. Don't grumble in the wilderness. Be like John and tell those who come out to you in your alone time. When you're, when you're perfectly set up quiet time, man, and it just gets broken up, right? That time, they wander in, tell them about Jesus. Wash them in the water of the Word, in the waters of the Jordan, like John the Baptist. Just, just after St. Gregory would send out monks to England and throughout the wider world to plant churches in the messiness of normal life, another saint who was contiguous with Gregory, he overlapped, St. Benedict of Nursia. St. Benedict of Nursia would establish an order that would keep the proclamation of the gospel and the care of neighbor alive for the next thousand years. And this, if you've heard of monasticism, you've heard of, you've heard of Benedictine monks. Benedictine monasticism. Most of us, maybe if we know about it just because they brewed a lot of beer, okay? Right? But Benedictine monks, this is the order of St. Benedict. Benedict said that you could be one of four kinds of monks, and this holds true today. You could be one of four kinds of Christians. There are two good kinds, and there are two bad kinds. So let me lay them out for you. First, the bad kinds. First, the bad kinds. The first one you could be like, the first Christian you could be, is a Sarabite, according to Benedict. And this is what he describes a Sarabite as, someone who has never submitted to anyone. He was never submitted to anyone, to any kind of disciplined Christian life with others. Sarabites go about in groups of two or three, according to Benedict, or even alone. They are social media Christians, someone who does what they want. They do, they do what they want. Their desires have become their laws. In other words, if you want it, let's baptize it and say that's good. If you dislike it, they consider it forbidden. So this is the way of the Sarabites. This is the first bad option. The second option, be a gyrovague. If you can forget that word, I, I dare you to 
forget the word gyrovague. Best word in the English language, I think, I'm pretty sure. Sam might have an argument for another word, but gyrovague. Here's the second bad option for the way of following Jesus. This is someone who goes from church to church, from political party to political party, from one distraction to the next, from marriage to marriage, from place to place. In other words, they are a wanderer, a gyrovague, who drift about all their lives, Benedict says, who drift about all their lives from one province to another and stay for two or three days as guests, first at one monastery, then in another. They are always roving and never settled. This was written 1,500 years ago. Seems pretty close to home. This is the American way. This is not just the American way. This is the way that all of us are, grow up in. This is the church in America. Benedict calls this the miserable way, the most miserable way. And he calls this wandering gyrovague as being worse than the worst of pagans. So here's the first two kinds of monks. What about the good ways? What, what are the positive examples? Benedict describes a third way called the anchorets, and you might, this is sometimes translated as hermits, as hermits. You guys have heard of this. Very few, according to Benedict, can become hermits. Very few have the strength of discipline necessary, and he describes this as warfare in the desert. He calls, he says that very few have the discipline necessary for solitary combat with the devil in the wilderness. Think of Mark chapter 1. Even John the Baptist wasn't alone. Jesus was there. Jesus was with him. Benedict says after the first fervor of their conversion, after they had withstood the long trials, the long trials of monastic life together and have learned to fight against the devil, not by themselves, but with everyone around them, having been taught by the good guidance of many others, Benedict says, a very small number of monks could be a hermit. Very, very small. After a life of shared life together, very few could go it alone. The American way of following Jesus starts with that. It's all about you and your individual piety. And the only way to have a faithful life by yourself, according to Benedict, and I've seen this over and over again, is after a long life of shared discipline together and maybe maybe you can survive out on the mission field by yourself the american way of following jesus can only work if you have unbelievable discipline in other words the american way of following jesus doesn't work we're not john the baptist are you john the baptist i'm not john the baptist and this solitary way cannot survive and i I almost guarantee it, it cannot survive in normal society. If you're in civilization and not in the desert, you can't do the solitary way. You can't be a Christian by yourself. You won't do it. The only way to remain faithful by yourself is out in the desert, free from every distraction, living in a cave, working with your hands day by day, praying and praying and copying the scriptures and praying and praying. And this only after a lifetime of discipline with others. So there's the first way. Let me commend not that way to you, okay? Here's the final way that Benedict 
uh, says, what is the, this is really the only way for us, for you, for me, to be faithful, normal Christians in normal life. It's to become a Cenobite. In other words, a monastic. You, Christian, get to be a monk. You get to be a monk or else a nun, right? You can shave your head. You could do that, or you could grow a big beard. You could do that too. You don't have to. You don't have to wear fancy dresses. Someone who voluntarily, though, submits to a spiritual father or a mother, who lives in community with brothers or sisters, who share a common life of praying and working and worshiping together. Sharing all your resources with one another so that you can give more and more to the poor. This was, for Benedict, this was the only path to stability. The only path to following Jesus over time. The path of staying, of remaining, of not being a gyrovague. Living faithfully in a faithless world. And all of this, if you read all of these reflections throughout church history, all of it is downstream from John the Baptist. From Mark chapter 1 at the beginning of the gospel. The path of humbling yourself before Jesus. Of bowing yourself to untie his sandals. You're not even worthy to do it, but you'll do that. Fasting together, feasting with others on the crumbs around the Lord's table. This is the way of life. I could say a lot more. That's a lot of history. It's a lot of history this morning. Kind of a strange sermon, I know. But it's the best exposition I know of how to apply the example of John the Baptist into our life. Don't make it up. Don't make it up. You don't have to. John has inspired countless men and women throughout the centuries to follow Jesus in a distracted world. This is good news to us, to remain faithful against all odds. But here's here's the point. John was never the point. John the Baptist was not the point. John the Baptist was the end. He was the end of the old story, but the story wasn't over yet. It was really just the beginning. John became to prepare the way, and here is the point. Here is the main point that we're looking forward to. That we're preparing the way for, this is my final point, which is the beginning, or else Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 1 and verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. All the outward discipline of John the Baptist... All the fasting and kneeling that Anglicans do or don't do in secret or here in public, in Advent or in other seasons, all of it, you could shave the top of your head like a monk and it would be a lie to God. It would be a lie to God, Benedict says. All of it would mean nothing if Jesus did not go into the wilderness after John. It doesn't mean anything if Jesus didn't go into the wilderness and crush the head of the serpent from the beginning of the gospel to the end. And so John's baptism of water, 
This outward sign would be ineffectual without Jesus' baptism of the Holy Spirit. We need Jesus. We need Jesus. He is the point. Now, after John was arrested, immediately after this story, verse 9 or verse 14, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, I'm here. I'm here. Mark doesn't tell us the rest of John's story. You have to go to the other Gospels to get most of his story. The only thing about John's life that continues in Mark's Gospel is his his proclamation. A summary of his proclamation, the words that he spoke in the wilderness that were changing the society. And then he was arrested and his head was chopped off and brought on a platter to a little girl. That's the rest of John's story. He's not the point. John was never the point, though. He, was, he came to point, to prepare the way. His way was a way of preparation for the way. The way of the Lord. The way of Jesus. There's salvation in no other way. You can go to a monastery, and without Christ, it's meaningless. You could be an Anglican. You can do all the stuff just right. Without Christ, there is no hope. Jesus was faithful in the wilderness. He passed through the waters of death on the cross at the beginning and all the way to the end of the gospel. And he rose again to life from the grave, trampling hell and Satan under his feet. This is the good news. Jesus alone can save us. All the discipline in the world cannot save you. And he invites us to follow him. He invites us to follow him. And if you're having a hard time just like following Jesus, find someone who's following after Jesus, who's trying. Find someone like John the Baptist. Find them. Submit yourselves to them. Submit yourselves one to to another as to the Lord and follow Jesus together. Go into the desert, into the waters of baptism, both the water and the spirit, and rise to life and be united into this monastery, into this church, into this Christ. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.